So, what is it I can do for you, sir? I'm dying. And I want to go before the governor. I want to be pardoned. Pardoned? For what? And you tell him that you're bringing in Rashid Bill Roberts, alias William Antrim, also known as William H. Bonnie. Whoa, whoa, whoa. William H. Bonnie? Billy the Kid. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, as part of our Pull-In Focus series, we'll be discussing Young Guns 2, colon, Blaze of Glory. Starring... Emilio Estevez. Now when I go for my guns, you start shooting. But I promise you, you will not make it. Lou Diamond Phillips. He'll catch you, Doc. Catch me. Everybody but him. The villager says Diablero. He can change into a coyote, disappear, and never gets killed. Me? I just think he's the luckiest white eye in New Mexico. Keith Sutherland. You're starting to believe what they're writing about you, aren't you? Scott Wilson. Extraordinary. I was expecting a rather rough and old fellow. Not so smooth a face. Christian Slater. Are you Billy the Kid? Yeah, but I am Arkansas Dave Rudabon. Alan Rook. You took a lot of farms, Mr. Chisholm. As long as Billy the Kid is taking some back, I'm with him. And William Peterson. You ever hear of a coy dog, Poe? Half common dog, half coyote? Feed one, he keeps coming around, no fear of man. Kid's a coy dog. Directed by Jeff Murphy. Yoo-hoo! I'll make you famous. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. You're starting to believe what they're writing about you, aren't you? It's Gally in Glasgow. I've never been to a batshit town. Can't wait to see the women. It's Matt in South Korea. Welcome back, Matt, and welcome back, listeners. We are back after a a much-deserved summer break. Devlin and Patrick are both being adults this week and are attending weddings. So myself and Matt are the outlaws and we are going to discuss, Matt, your choice for a pull in focus film, which uh, which for those listeners that have never uh, heard us do a pull in focus, it's where we try and shed some light on a film that at least one of us believes deserves more exposure. So Matt, why Young Guns 2, colon, Blaze of Glory? And what is your relationship with the film? Well, the West just got wilder, Gally. Uh, we're going to take a dip in the Morgan Creek uh, for uh, the Jeff Murphy uh, three-peat, I believe. Uh, we're rounding off the Jeff Murphy trilogy with the Bon Jovi-crooned Brat Pack Western sequel, Young Guns 2. Um, it's always quality assurance when there's a colon in the title, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> actually, on, on some, when I Googled it, a lot of the listings didn't actually have the the uh, the colon and the blaze of glory. They're just going with Young Guns 2. But I, that was always part of it back in the day. Blaze of glory was always tagged on there. It's a Jeff Murphy thing, right? Because obviously, <laughs> for those listeners that have followed the show all the way through, we've done Under Siege 2 colon dark territory. So maybe, maybe he just tells his agent, you know, back then, I want yeah. to do a script unless there's a colon. <laughs> Uh, why did I pick it? 
Um, I wanted to mention nostalgia first because I think that's going to be a key part of what we're talking about with the pulling focus choices. Um, the films that we saw during our formative years are like uniquely special and they're really hard to recreate. Um, the films that we absorb as teenagers and, and kids are kind of lodged in our hearts a bit. And that's where I'm coming from with, with this pick. Uh, your job might be to detach my nostalgia a bit and, and take a more of a critical eye, uh, cause I, I've got rose tinted glasses on with, with this one. Um, so if I get a bit too hyperbolic or, or use too many superlatives, you please shut me down. Um, I think I, I could have picked anything. You were very gracious with letting me choose. So, uh, having carte blanche, I thought I'd choose something that no one else would pick. Cause I don't think this one's going to sneak its way in unless I pick it. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's why, um, did, had you seen this movie before? I've seen both of them. Uh, when they, when they, you know, when they reached television and aired late night, um, I had real scanty memories. Um, Emilio's giggle as Billy the Kid, <laughs> Keith Sutherland's luscious hair. Yeah. Um, I, I remember the Chavez character, um, alongside some of those guitar riffing, um, mm soundtrack that's just laden across all of this but i had absolutely completely forgotten about the plot um for both of them so actually revisiting this week was a bit of a treat because i had absolutely no idea where it was going to head and um it's one of the it's one of the things i'm really looking forward to in discussing it is it's going to allow me to go full circle on it because Mm. i saw i saw these as a youngster but um you know, I mentioned it in, in our review of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. God, we love long titles, don't we? Yeah. Um, and, and I am a huge Western fan and I will maybe get into again the reasons why. Cause actually Young Guns 2, colon, Blaze of Glory. We will, we'll have to do that throughout, won't we? Which will yes. get irritating, but yeah. well, I'll just have to just keep referring to the film. Um, <laughs> but, but it's one of the things that I, I enjoy about uh, enjoyed about the movie is that I think that it, it ticks many of the boxes, um, that you would want from any, you know, kind of quote unquote Western. So, uh, I'm looking forward to getting into it with you. For me, it was probably my first Western. I know it's Western light, but, uh, you know, aside from these kind of dusty Vista Westerns that I don't even remember the names of that you'd see at 3 PM on channel four, just flicking channels and, and it wouldn't be particularly interesting. It wouldn't hold a youngster's interest. Perhaps that's why Young Guns was born, like reinventing it in, in that sense for a, a more youthful audience. Uh, but this idea that a Western could have hard edged violence and swearing and nudity was kind of uh, a foreign concept to me. Of course, you'd, you'd find that loads of Westerns are like that later on when you when you seek them out but um this one was really exciting and and fresh and had some actors that i knew or vaguely knew um i have to name check my friend dave smith again fans of the show will know him and his family as the uh the (laughs) the guys that acted out schindler's list and uh teenage mutant ninja turtles and robin hood so um dave was actually the one who got me into this he had older brothers and uh uh i think that informed his taste in in film they, they got passed down to him uh, so a lot of vhs tapes would go back and forth there'd be a lot of 15s and 18s it'd be very dangerous uh so between games of heads and volleys and playing cards we would talk about movies and this film was one of the most quoted 
of, of all of our favorites. I remember him saying, you son of a bitch, you killed the boy and you killed Dark. You knew him. <laughs> I can I can hear Dave <laughs> saying those words while we were playing cards. So I didn't have Sky and uh, I used to just tape things off TV. And this was something I taped on like a custom VHS and I edited out the adverts very carefully. And I don't think it was edited. I don't think it was cut for TV. Um, but it's really nice to watch the DVD now because all of the joins are very clean. All of my bad editing where the commercials were has been <laughs> cropped out and it's all very neat. Um, so Dave had a real appreciation for movies. Um, and that enthusiasm kind of spilled over onto me. He was one of the first people. He was a year or two older than me. So uh, he was an influential person as far as uh, the, the films that I went on to to love so uh there was one other thing i had a cd of movie soundtracks and it had the william h bonnie line oh no it's, it's Kiefer sutherland saying uh william h bonnie you are not a god and then he says why don't you pull the trigger and find out and then it goes into blaze of glory and that was on like a mix cd so i played that very often matt for those who might not have seen the film in a long while like me could you please give us the plot synopsis for young guns 2 colon blaze of glory super elderly dying desert codger brushy bill roberts calls upon a lawyer bradley whitford to get himself pardoned for the killing of 21 men and claims to be the actual william antrim also known as william h barney alias billy the kid when asked if he has the scars to prove it his memories, or reverie, propels us back to his violent youth. The tale begins at the end of the Lincoln County War, circa 1878, where Billy has taken up cattle hustling with gang members Patrick Floyd Garrett, played by William Peterson, and Arkansas Dave Rudabar, played by Christian Slater. The powerful Irish politicians now running Lincoln County are set on hanging the kid. When Billy's tempted in by Governor Lou Wallace, Scott Wilson, under the pretense he'll be fully pardoned in exchange for turning state evidence against his old enemies, the Murphy Boys, the men that gunned down his fatherly mentor, John Tunstall, he's double-crossed, arrested, and slated for hanging. Of course, I was blessed with big wrists and small hands. (laughs) The kid escapes. Not for the first time in this tale, rescuing old pals Josiah Doc Skurlock, Kiefer Sutherland, a reluctant now reformed tenderfoot school teacher from the city of New York, and spiritual Mexican Indian Chavez E. Chavez, Lou Diamond Phillips, from the horseship prisoner pit and sparing them the hangman's noose. The band of outlaws then fight and flee the real fiery lynch mob vigilantes. Reunited, the old Lincoln County regulators skin out taking the Mexican Blackbird, a supposed broken trail to old Mexico. Billy's underwhelming army of reinforcements, consisting solely of teenage bread thief Tommy, Prince of Pennsylvania, played by Balthazar Getty, a 14-and-a-half-year-old kid who idolizes Billy, and green farm boy Henry William French, played by Alan Ruck, who joins the outfit in spite of never killing anything larger than a sage hen, all miffed. Chisholm, Wallace, and D.A. Rynerson hire Pat as the new sheriff of Lincoln County to hunt down and exterminate one William H. Bonney. So this film is, what, about an hour and 44 yeah. minutes with credits? That's there's right. quite a lot. There's quite a lot packed in. Um, 
And there is, you know, there are many, many moving parts with lots of new characters introduced, lots of set pieces, mm. lots of uh, kind of emotional beats and lots of um, conflicts that then need to be resolved, some better than others. Mm. So my first question is really, because we're doing a sequel, just to do a little bit of plate setting, the first one was pretty successful. You know, I think it was about $11 million, but with all these young actors, Emilio's brother, Charlie, weirdly playing the straight guy in the first mm. one. That that doesn't that doesn't age well. No. Um, he's um, he's, uh, he's killed uh, the gang that uh, he assembled in the first one, uh, where he really joins them. Um, what are they called the regulators? Yeah, the Lincoln County regulators. That's something yeah. that pops up in the second one too. The the old Lincoln County regulators. And it, and it kind of uh, leaves on a on a sort of triumphant note, but with you know the sense that the myth of Billy the Kid has been established already this film kind of picks up a year later mm. so my question my question is we've got the same screenwriter john fusco we've got the same production company in morgan creek and we've got the same distributors in 20th century fox mm. so in your research was it always planned to have a sequel because the first one came out in 1988 and this one is released in 1990 that is a hell of a turnaround for penning a script, getting it shot, and getting it released. So was Hmm. it always planned? Evidence would point to no. Uh, Look at the Kiefer Sutherland uh, text at the end of the first movie. It says that he moved east with the the China girl, as they say in the movie, Um, and her family. uh, I, I much prefer Doc in the second one, by the way. Uh, Yeah, so that would suggest that they had different ideas for Doc. Um, they kill off Charlie Sheen, which I don't think they would have done if they were planning a sequel. Uh, and there's also a moment with Pat Garrett where he's not yet a lawman. Billy kind of freaks out, but, um, he's not yet a lawman, so he's not going to do anything. And there's, in terms of arresting him, potentially, and there's no relationship between the two because he doesn't really meet Pat in the movie, does he, in the first one until the very uh, end? He, they, they're, you know, when they're doing the New Year's oh, Eve. He- he does. He meets him briefly at the party. For history buffs, it's, you know, it's one of those like, uh, little Easter egg scenes where they're, ah, they'll meet later on mm-hmm. in life. But, but I don't, but I don't get the sense that the film, you know, now we're so used to, um, the way that cinematic universes have, have kind of evolved that every yeah. little thing that happens in a movie will, will inevitably be paid off late in later sequels. You know, Marvel have kind of nailed that formula down to a T, almost irritatingly to a T, so you can't even watch anything in isolation. True. But you would think that that would be what they're doing. But no, because not only is it played by a different actor, I mean, it's just stunt casting. So I, because I, I checked it, I was like, I don't recognize this, this individual who's playing Pat Garrett, but I know Pat Garrett, the name, as little um, as I know Billy the Kid. I don't really know too much about the whole mythology of Billy the Kid, but I know Pat Garrett as a name. And uh, and it was played by John Wayne, one of John Wayne's sons. Yeah, I didn't know that. Which is great, you know, as a bit of stunt casting again for people who are like wink, wink, nod, nod. But then in this one, Pat Garrett is played by William Peterson, far superiorly. Yeah, a, 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 an actual actor because he's actually got a lot to do in this one. But it doesn't feel like the, there's any real connective tissue between the first one and the second one. One of the things that I found really frustrating and probably a little bit annoying, I'd imagine, to anyone new to the series 
is that I remember, and you're a big James Cameron fan, so mm. you know what I'm going to say. His his stances, a sequel should should live and die on its own. You shouldn't have to have gone back. Yes. To to then enjoy a sequel, and you know he's so masterfully done that in Aliens and in Terminator Two does this very similar thing where you just have a little Sarah Connor dialogue right at the beginning, and then that's it. You don't really need to have gone back to see the first mm-hmm. one. Um, in this one, they keep referring back to the first film and a lot of the uh, dynamics of the group and some of the conflicts. It's relying upon the John Tunstall uh, moment, really, isn't it? Hugely, and to the detriment of the film, I think, because it doesn't really give us a scene or a flashback. I don't mm-hmm. know how you would do it that would be satisfying to an audience. But when I was watching it, because I watched both of them back to back, I was sort of like, well, unless you've watched it recently, you're going to feel a bit, I don't know, you're going to feel a little bit like, well, this isn't wholly satisfying. They keep Mm. referring back to the old gang and where Billy was, but it was only 12 months ago. But the way that they talk, it's like they've not seen each other for for decades. It's a a strange one. It could have been done uh, using footage from the first movie, but I I don't usually like it when films do that. Um, there's, the moment is uh, Terence Stamp as John Tunstall, their their mentor, uh, is is gunned down by the Murphy Boys, and that triggers uh, the revenge tale of the first movie. But um, I'm not sure how it could be done. I, I agree and I don't agree. I, th- this one always struck me as like the way Evil Dead Two almost remade Evil Dead. It, it was like they knew exactly what he was doing the second time around and it shows. And this one, uh, and, and also like elements of Terminator, you mentioned Cameron, that the, the second film stands alone. Um, what it needs to address, it does it very quickly, as you said, and then it, it moves on. But um, I'd also go as far as to say that to appreciate Young Guns 2, you, you actually need to detach it from the first one. Because I think the first film actually does it a disservice in many ways. Uh, It's in an ideal world, it would be all one movie. It would be, we would see Billy join the gang and John Tunstall would be murdered. And then they'd spend more time together as the outlaw group. And then we would get all of the events of the second movie. It would probably be too long these days, you know, it could be two and a half hours long. That's what happens. But, um, I don't know if that would benefit the movie, but it would benefit the story and it would certainly benefit a lot of the criticisms aimed towards the characters. Cause it's not just you. Um, a lot of the reviews I've, I've read have, uh, I've talked about the development of characters and not really understanding, uh, the motivations of, of, uh, a lot of the characters other than Billy. Let's talk about the framing for Young Guns 2. Um, so for those that you have not seen it for a long, long time, it's, it's framed as, as Matt rightfully said, as an older, an older gent who is Emilio Estevez in, in some pretty impressive old man makeup with mm. a, with a husky voice meeting a, meeting a lawyer and he's wanting a pardon for his, his previous sins because that's what was promised to him. And then that's what we will see in the movie. How do you feel that plays out as a, as, as the sort of narrative structure for the tale that is going to be told in Young Guns 2? Well, I do like bookends. And it has that uh, going for it. I, the whole brushy Bill Roberts thing is is a big question mark hanging over this thing. Some some people think that that can be removed entirely, and we can just go in with those desert vistas 
and Alan Silvestri's score immediately and end with um, the, the potential death or, or escape of, of Billy. And it could all just end there. But this, this idea of an, an old man's um, memory being, I, and, and him either being Billy or just some lunatic out there imagining this story and spinning it to, to Bradley Whitford. Um, personally, I've always read it as, as him telling the yeah, truth. Yeah, well, I think, I think the film, that's the point of view of the film, right? As well, the film I think is so. saying this is definitely Billy the Kid. Again, unless, uh, why else would you tell Emilio Estevez or would he put, it, put himself him. forward? Yeah. yeah. Other than, other than it would be quite neat and something that they could do at that point. Um, you know, the effects were able to kind of successfully give you an old man makeup that wouldn't be too distracting. And I don't think it's distracting. I've seen criticisms of it and the voice, and I know you've yeah. done the voice, but, um, I think it's, I think it's, it's only because Emilio Estevez has got a very distinct mm. cadence that you would I, then be like, well, that is definitely him because right. it doesn't matter how gruffly he makes it. It still sounds. Like Emilio it's, Estevez, it does, so, yeah. so getting yeah. around it. But I don't. But I don't. That's not a criticism. But I do think that I would have liked it to have been more of a mystery, and and actually, then it would have it would have played into the idea of Billy the Kid's. You know, is he or isn't he? Yeah, yeah, his myth, his legend, because mm. it's a case of saying, well, it's how you read it, whether or not it's true or not true. But the film, I think, quite clearly yeah. is, is say, stating that this is Billy the Kid. I listened to every podcast on this on Spotify, and I was very disappointed. So I hope we're the best of the bunch, anyone listening. <laughs> um, somebody said, he looks just like Emilio. And I was like, well, yeah, but he, he looks like Billy, and he's supposed to look like Billy, and he looks like an old man. So it works, but it, I, I see what you what you mean as far as uh, um, the mystery of it. But I, I still think there's enough of a mystery there because some people, the layman, may, may not even realise that's Emilio. But no, it's just true. Yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, you, it, it's more just his voice. Like I say, his voice yeah, is so distinct. Very distinct. It's, it, you can't get past it. But there's a little story there. Um, he spent seven hours in the makeup chair. Uh, to prove that he could do it. And then he went to a retirement home with Charlie Sheen and Charlie Sheen videotaped him just pottering around this retirement home. And then uh, like having chats with people and people would ask him how old he was and he'd say, I'm 83. And they just believe it. And uh, they showed the video to the, to the studio to prove that they could, they could do it. And uh, they said, they said, okay, but it is a bit Abe Simpson. Uh, whoever did that on the podcast, they're right. I don't think it's worth. I don't think it's worthy of you know an hour of ridicule. But um, I can see why people might have issues with it. I personally quite like it. I feel like the film is missing a really obvious central theme. I guess that's my my big my one of my big issues with it was I think there's loads of stuff in there that I that I was getting uh, attached to. Mm. But this this is your opening scene, and we've talked about it in many many different uh, reviews that we've done. And that this is your opportunity to kind of put out your thesis. Like mm-hmm. This is what what is going to be the central question. And to me, this is starting the screenplay is saying the central question is, what is Billy the Kid deserving of a pardon? It doesn't address that in, in particular. It, do, it doesn't does. really. It doesn't really address it. And at the same point as well is the other the question that the lawyer asks, which is, you know, do you have scars? We see that he does physically mentally and emotionally but again it never 
it never double it, it never like doubles down on that to the point where I'm like, okay, this is the film's perspective on Billy the Kid. He is for all of his, you know, useful exuberance and his legend and the fact that he was infamous. He is now a sad, lonely old man. It kind mm. of gives him a, again, the film is just sort of, ab- br- ab- it just abruptly ends. What am I supposed to walk away thinking about Billy the Kid at the end of the movie? Is, as I guess what I'm saying. He, he basically gets everyone killed. And I was laughing today. I rewatched it and, and Chavez's death scene, which always was extremely sad to me. I was laughing and I thought, why am I, why am I laughing at this? And it was because Chavez is thinking, fuck you, man. Like you, you got everyone killed. And you're saying to me that it should have been you getting shot. And then he has to stagger off to that barn and die. And um, Billy's lied about the trail at this point. Everyone who's joined the gang just about has been killed and or, or met like a horrible end. Uh, even like Arkansas Dave gets beheaded after he gets to Mexico, apparently. According <laughs> yeah, to yeah. I choose not to believe that, but, um, you know. Um, so, yeah, it lays out the wrong kind of thing because I, to me the the story is about friendship and loyalty and if it's about pat and billy uh that's what it needs to to focus on and i think as as i said before if the two films had been uh just nudged together and and made as one we could have explored that more pat as part of the gang and then the betrayal there's a lot of talk about pals and and friends and um do you remember john tunstall and they went they're, they're all you know, um, uh, brothers in a sense, um, not so much Pat. He was always kind of the outsider. So, uh, yeah, all, all that idea of a thesis and then addressing it could have been done better. I think a bit more cleanly. One of the things that I did enjoy is the tragic nature of the movie, like the inevitable conclusion. The net is closing in on Billy the Kid. And one of the things I really enjoy, and let's talk about him, is Emilio Estevez, who you well, you weren't on our free Jack episode, but I no. was not kind because he he was lost at sea in that. I movie. listened in and I watched the film on. I don't know if it was recommended or not, but I watched it anyway. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't uh, recommended by me, but it was fun though. <laughs> I, I watched it for the the Mick Jagger weirdness. That's what got me in, and I, he he was floundering, wasn't he, Emilio? I I don't know what was happening there. Well, I think it's it, it's clear to me that he works better in an ensemble. I think he feels more comfortable with a group. Um, a group of actors um, of similar age uh, that he can bounce off. And in Free Jack, he's really got the weight of the movie on his shoulders and Mick Jagger is speaking to him via Skype most of the time. <laughs> so actually, he's got to do all the heavy lifting in each scene and I, he just really struggles. Whereas in this, he's similar, but for for whatever reason, you know, sometimes it, actors and roles, they just they just seem to have a, a fit. Uh, and And... Emilio Estevez as Billy the Kid, I think, is is fantastic in this. He's better in this one, I feel, than in the first one because he's allowed to actually. St- he's starting to come a- come away at the seams, isn't he? I think mm. um, there's lots of there's lots of scenes where something something goes wrong, and he is unable to process how it didn't. You know, it didn't work out in his favor. One of them being that Chavez moment when he realizes that Chavez is, is, is going to die. Doomed, he, yeah. he, he lashes out, flips the table, right. and then tries to, you know, everything's going to be okay. Mm. Exactly like you would when you're, when you're a youngster, right? You know, you, you, yes. you are, you are unbound. You are not, 
you never think about um and i wrote in my notes like fatalism it's not mm. something that crosses your mind death isn't it's not even a concept that you've you can even get to grips with because you're just like well right. we'll get away with it and one of the things that they keep mentioning about is is how the newspapers write about him in a, such a way that he is literally infallible he's not going to He's not going to, even when he gets shot, it's never a death wound. It's always just a, a graze or whatever. Yeah, he, he gets, he gets one in the leg early on. Um, and then the limp as brushy bill is actually accurate to that leg shot as well, which is kind of a giveaway. Yeah, it's Again, a nice touch in there. It's yeah, a nice it's, it's nice. Um, I think, uh, did you know that Sean Penn was originally cast or very close to being cast in this one? Uh, but he punched a photographer and he went to jail. And he, he couldn't take the role, so it went to Emilio. Ah. Well, I think uh, Sean Penn would be interesting because he would do the he did the sociopath psychopath. <laughs> it's too dark, him. not enough. But playful. I'm not sure. But yeah, well, this is it. So I was going to ask you because clearly Young Guns Two has got a, a, a real a real place in your heart. Mm. And when you saw it as a teenager, that must have been what you were responding to, right? It's because Emilio Estevez is some he is super super high energy likable yeah. youthful exuberance but as you say now as you watch it he is reckless and <laughs> yeah, essentially if you, jo- if you join this gang mm. you're gonna definitely die because that's what i mean by the, like, laughing at the chevet scene that was never funny to me before but now i see that his frustration that this guy's like he turns into into a coyote and disappears i think is one of the lines he'll never get caught we'll all get caught he'll never get caught and mm. that turns out mm-hmm. to be true um, yeah, and, and, and his defiance of authority, you know, these are all like things as a teenager. We've talked about it in other films where I mentioned it in Donnie Darko about how I identified with Donnie's frustration against systems. Yes. Because when you're younger, you start to see, you know, peek behind the curtain and think, oh, this is just wrong. But then you become part of the system and you just right. look at it from afar going, it's still wrong, but... It's just the way it is. And Billy doesn't, doesn't abide by that. But again, one of the things that I thought in the sequel, again, referring to like a thesis is in the first one, there is a clear, clear moral dilemma, which is we need to take out this bad guy. Like if whatever Billy's doing is bad, but you know, if you've got Jack Palance in your movie, he <laughs> is going to be worse. So yeah. it's easy then to, <laughs> to, to say, well, I will identify with the outlaws on this one. I guess the only thing that they, they try and, they try and say is that the world is changing. Like the West is changing. You need to, there needs to be structure. There needs to be law in order for things to progress. And he started to feel a bit outdated. But he's just still stealing horses and whatnot. It feels quite low level. I, I wondered mm. if then he needed like a big bad who was genuinely bad. Whereas Scott Wilson's, he's an aristocrat. He's not a big bad. The three guys that, um, end up hiring Pat, uh, are, are the closest. I mean, Coburn, he's only really in one scene. It's an incredible scene, but uh, it's a great it's, scene. It's one of I my favorite that. scenes in the film. Uh, it's yeah. great. Um, I wanted to say about Estevez that. There's something emerged in this one that wasn't in the first, and there's this supreme confidence. He is Billy the Kid at this point, and he's got all the little quirks. He's got the cheeky accents, like uh, no Billy the Kid in there when he looks in the pit, and he's got the mask on, uh, and he does like uh, like the jig when he goes to the outhouse. He does like a little dance, and he spits on the on the sheriff's hat, and he's got all these little details that he does. 
And I hesitate to say that he'd be the actor that most people remember as Billy the Kid. I mean, uh, Paul Newman played Billy the Kid and Chris Christopherson um, historically. So to me, that's the one that stands out. Um, you know, uh, as far as the brushy bill thing, one more time, there's one moment there that, that is my favorite, one of my favorite Emilio moments. I know he's in the, the seven hour makeup, but um, the, the camera pushes in and he's reeling off the, the aliases and uh and he declares himself to be billy the kid and bradley whitford is just is watching him and i think that combined with the next scene where we go straight into the canyons with the alan silvestri music that's the first five minutes of the movie and i think if you're not in at that point you're going to probably struggle with some of the things that happen later that's kind of laying out it's laying things on the line um, and it's a bit daft and it's a bit funny and it, it's very on the nose in terms of what it's taking from previous Westerns. But I think, you know, kind of five, six minutes in if, if you're going to go with this one. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And, um, I think we, we should, we should talk Emilio because he's got a fascinating career really because I was looking at his filmography and he has been in for, for people of a certain age, so many seminal movies that people will look fondly back on and he he really did fall into a kind of chasm of obscurity mm. uh, i just wonder if a night at the roxbury really did kill him didn't it you know mm. when, once you once once someone makes a weird random tangential joke like the one that <laughs> um will ferrell does in that where he's like talking about the time that he saw emilio <laughs> and he's shouting emilio and we were yeah. Yeah, we were doing it in free jack it you it really does harm the narrative around you something else is the uh the loaded weapon one spoof uh, which i think he's terrific in but it's it's what do you do after that and it does something to a career it? once you go there it's like leslie nielsen is not going to go back into a serious role after the naked gun it's not going to you're right loaded weapon although it is funny i mean i'm thinking samuel jackson <laughs> the guy can't shoot yeah <laughs> and uh we've all loaded loaded weapons got plenty of gags tim curry selling uh girl scout cookies as well but the best Emilio one in that is when he's uh in the in the 7-eleven and he's flicking through the magazine and all the all the little adverts are falling out of the 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 magazine and when the camera kind of cuts back to a wider shot he's just buried in all of the little uh, pieces of paper and slips that have fallen out of the magazine um it, it's it again it, he's great in it but how do you where do you go from there yeah yeah where do you and, and where did he go and he he kind of has fluted with television but has never unlike say keith Sutherland, who who got like 24 this is Akita Sutherland TV series that yeah a TV show really- would have really helped him I think that's something comedic that, that played to his strengths yeah and he, he directed Bobby did you ever see that I, I, I didn't see when it, we were he's a pretty talented director I think he's yeah talented. it was good but he I think he plowed his own money into it and um, mm. it didn't make any money whatsoever like no one went to see it I went to see it I remember I can't remember if I saw it. At, Leeds festivals. I mm. think I might have gone with Devlin, you know, but we both watched it and was like, oh, it's really good. I'd love to see another Emilio Estevez directed film. And he never, mm. he never really did one. He just 
started carried on hanging out with John Bon Jovi and, <laughs> and it's fine. Like, but I guess it's just weird to me that for, for a lot of people, Emilio Estevez is a, is a walking, talking joke. And he's actually been in some really important and delivered some really, really good performances. And, and Young Guns 2, I think is for me of all the films he's been in, you know, including The Breakfast Club, I think this is his, his best role. Yeah. I, I think it's he, if, if you watch his interviews, he's very humble and nice. And he's, he's a lot like Martin Sheen in many ways, quite a quiet chap. He's like the other, the other side of the coin as far as Charlie Sheen's concerned. So when you, when you see his interviews and then you see him as Billy the Kid, particularly in the second Young Guns film, you can, you can see his range and you can see when he's used properly what he can do. I mean, he's, he's a movie star in this. Yeah. He me. is a movie star in this. Um, and, and unfortunately it just, uh, it just didn't happen in Free Jack, uh, the material, but we should speak of another Free Jack link, which is Jeff Murphy, because yeah. one of the, what we are completing his Hollywood trilogy, New Zealand director, um, second unit on Dante's Peak, second unit director on Lord of the Rings. And again, uh, I, cause you, you sent me a link to one of those podcasts. I listened to it and they were really bad mouthing Jeff Murphy as like a bit of a hack. And uh, I think that is super disingenuous because I think this film is expertly directed. Like as far as compositions, as far as Westerns and what you want from a Western, it's got some beautiful vistas. It's got some great close-ups on the eyes, on the face, fill in the frame, lots of wonderful lighting setups and great set pieces. And I'm thinking about that um, Lynch Mobs uh, Siege uh, the, some of the horses jumping through windows stuff. Oh yeah. You know, it's all practical. It's all shot in camera. And I think it's great. And unfortunately, again, for him, Under Seeds 2, colon, dark territory, his <laughs> most successful Hollywood movie. Um, I would blame everything that's wrong with that on Steven Seagal and not Jeff Murphy. I think he's, <laughs> he's one of those people, isn't he? He's one of those directors that, you know, I think he died a few years ago. He did, yeah. But give him a script and you will get a competently made, technically proficient movie and that is not to be scoffed at at all did, did i ever tell you the story from the lord of the rings behind the scenes where um jeff murphy was being asked uh, what kind of director's chair do you want and he was just he was busy doing something he said oh i think he's from he's from new zealand right and he yeah goes, he's new zealand yeah he goes oh, i'll just have that one and he just pointed over there to this chair that was that happened to be in the room he was joking and then they got to the to his first day on set and there was a helicopter craning in a chair and he thought, what, what is that? And it was the chair that he pointed to <laughs> and they took him at his word and they were, they were helicoptering in his chair to these weird mountain locations on Lord of the Rings every day. And, and he'd sit in this strange kind of leather office chair when he was directing. Um, so that says a lot about the man. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to, Echo everything you've just said. I think he's someone who understands westerns as well, which really helps. Um, I think he's a really talented filmmaker. But I think the key to this one visually could be uh, Dean Semler, who is the DOP. I thought, why doesn't Under Siege 2 look as good as Young Guns 2? Why doesn't Free Jack look like this? And it's mm. because he's working with different DOPs. It's Dean Semler, who did uh, uh, Waterworld... Oh, um, well, that's a fan favourite of yours. Got. Fan favourite of mine. Uh, he did Housewives' favourite, Cocktail, 
Uh, well, cocktail for many things does look good. It's just dreadful. And he won the uh, Academy Award, I believe, for Dances with Wolves. He gets westerns and he clearly loves westerns as well. And John Ford westerns and Peck and Paw westerns, you know, the dust feels tangible. Everything feels, when I say gritty, we're not talking, you know, Batman, Zack Snyder gritty. We're talking about like, it feels authentic. It's tactile. The the dust is there. You can, there's almost, uh, again, like, Somebody said to me once that about Tarkovsky. When you watch a Tarkovsky film, you can smell it somehow. You can every sense is there. It's like in in this, the costumes never really uh, ring a, a false note. Uh, the, the costumes look good, and uh, the you, you mentioned the action there and the practical action. And even the the one thing I wanted to talk about was the was what you already said was when Christian Slater comes through the window on on the horse. That's amazing. Uh, it's such, it's a great, great shot. Yeah. And the, there's also a, a wonderful shot of two horses carrying a wooden beam that they're then going to trip up the lynch yeah. mob with. Now yeah. that is not only super dangerous, but mm-hmm. that's just like, that it pulls you in to that action <laughs> sequence straight away. And you've got fire. The other, the other sequence I thought was, was brilliantly done. I mean, there's some masterful editing, mm-hmm. but the, the horses going over, the hill. Oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, that is just... Even that, their horses it, are crazy. It, yeah, if you aren't watching that thinking, like, heart and mouth stuff, yeah. then I don't think you like movies. Like, really don't, because that's real horses, that's real stuntmen, and it's shot in camera, and he's, cho- he's chosen the right kind of angles to give you the yeah. maximum impact of how steep that hill may or may mm-hmm. not be. Um, it's great. Yeah, really, really good stuff. The horse falls in particular are really impressive. Uh, there's one point where they seem to put a squib on a horse's neck. I don't yeah, know if you yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Uh, with the shot, it's uh, Christian Slater's horse gets shot, and then right. Chavez, Chavez picks him up. And again, Slater does the stunt. You can see it. Slater gets it's picked him. up on the back. It's great. Well, um, Lou Diamond Phillips said it's either the first movie or the second. I, I think it's the second. Um, whenever he is on like the, the runaway horse. It's it's real. It's legit because he he couldn't stop it at that point. Um, and so <laughs> when, when he was going, it just bolted and he couldn't stop it. So whatever's in the movie with the, the horse moving quickly, it's mm. it, he, he was just hanging on for dear life, I think. Or maybe it was Christian Slater. It was one one of the two. Well, a good comparison for for people that have not seen Young Guns to Colin Blazer Glory in a long long time, and 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 don't believe what we're saying is Back to the Future Three feels like a Hollywood set, looks like a Hollywood set. The costumes look like they've just come straight out of the old cupboard. <laughs> so everything, everything feels like a studio Western set. This, to my mind, doesn't. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to say that the town feels real, but, but a bit like an Unforgiven, which is another of that era. It, it feels lived in. There's the, the wood feels like it's slightly rotten. On all the on all the buildings, it looks like sand has smashed into those windows. Everything just that all the departments have turned up to make a proper western, which is why and and you mentioned it in your description. I slightly resent a lot of the reviews uh, that were written at the time, kind of talking about this kind of MTV generation western film. I'm like, well, if it wasn't the MTV generation western film, then it would be the you know. Generation Z Western film, whatever you want to call it for 2021. Like all they are trying to do is say, here's a genre that is kind of on its ass. So let's kind of give it a little bit of a modern spin. Um, and let's also 
make sure that we are paying homage to to where it's come from. I think the only difference between Young Guns 2 and something like Once Upon a Time in the West or The Good, The Bad and The Ugly is that I think Sergio Leone managed to weave in really topical and lofty themes within an action-packed Western film. Certainly in Once Upon a Time in the West, the conflict between frontier Westerns and big business taking over, that, that runs throughout that entire film and it is seminal to all the characters. Whereas in Young Guns 2, as I mentioned, the central thesis just doesn't quite come through. The, the two you mentioned there, my top three Westerns, probably Good, the Bad and the Ugly, Once Upon a Time in the West and Unforgiven. And, you know, Unforgiven has the, uh, the, the reassessment of, of Clint Eastwood too. It's like he came, came back to the Western and he's playing upon this star persona that we already know. Uh, and that's what makes Unforgiven so interesting. So Young Guns 2 falls outside of my top three credible Westerns, but it was the first one I saw. It was a good in. And uh, it, it may be that there's nothing really beneath the surface on this one. It's not really stating anything uh, as well as those other three films we've mentioned. Uh, but the MTV sensibility you, you talked about, um, that does sound demeaning and it does sound dismissive. And I think a lot of critics are just reading previous reviews and then echoing them because it's it's easy. Um, and, and as you said, these reviews are very, very brief, uh, quite lazy. Um it's usually used as an insult, but I think if we look at the era, um, what they're trying to do is just make a lot of exciting, entertaining scenes happen back to back. And what you, what you gain is a very exciting, entertaining picture, but what you lose are these moments of quiet levity. And, uh, I think you mentioned that you, there wasn't room for you to breathe when you watch this. Absolutely. I think um, I'm going to point to two two key scenes. And, and we've already mentioned Pat Garrett as being a key player within this movie, played by William Peterson, a super intense actor. So <laughs> if, you've never, if you've never seen Manhunter, mm-hmm. just watch that. And then if you've seen the updated Red Dragon, Ed Norton's got nothing on William Peterson. Like when, <laughs> when, when William Peterson is like, uh, you... you you took off your glove, didn't you? You took off your glove. <laughs> I can tell you now that William Peterson is, is, is way more intense than Ed Norton and uh, mm. he has got no room for a giggle in any movie mm. he's ever in. Um, but, they try it here, don't they? They do try it. They do try it. Yeah. The only laugh you're going to get is his long hair mustache <laughs> thing. Um, that's about it. But that, that conflict, the, the Judas betrayal mm. in this movie, it's a key scene. You've got the three, uh, kind of pillars of capitalism. And it's, it's, it's a temptation. And we've heard, and again, this is where I feel like they needed an additional scene. He's made mention that he's a family man, that he's, he wants to make roots, that he, he does what he does in order to survive, but he's, he's only does it to survive to get him to a place where he can then go legit. But it's all, that's all done kind of throwaway lines, um, between mm. him and, him and Billy. That scene, we pan into William Peterson and he is doing all sorts with his face. <laughs> you can see that he is conflicted as they offer him $500 up front and then say another $500,000 back in 18 dot is like being offered 
I guess a million now or right. whatever. I don't know what the I don't know what the inflation is, but I'd imagine it's pretty big. A lot. And uh and the film chooses I say chooses, the editor, and you're gonna have to look at Jeff Murphy. It's not like it's one of those ones where he's been locked out of the editing room. It chooses to just fade as we push in onto mm. Billy the Kid riding. And I was like, no, that is not that is such the wrong choice. Like you need to go fully in, pan, look at those eyes and sit with it. Because the whole the film was trying to say that Pat Garrison wasn't all bad and that it was a difficult choice for him. But the way that the film executes that moment, it, it feels like it was like, well, it was an easy decision to make. I'll just take the thousand dollars. Yeah, way too abrupt. Now, Pat, we know that you've been with Billy Bonnie several times when you cut my herd. Now, Pat, we're looking for somebody who knows his haunts, his uh, hideouts, somebody who's familiar with his pattern. You are familiar with him, Mr. Garrett. You see, Patrick, certain changes need to be structured. We need a sheriff who can eliminate this particular problem. I don't quite follow what you're saying. We're saying Sheriff of Lincoln County, Sheriff Pat Garrett. Now that ought to make you feel pretty good. And... We're saying $500 up front and 500 after. after. $1,000, Mr. Garrett, and all the resources you need to carry out the extermination of one William H. Bonnie. But one thing that helps it, uh, I'll go back to something you said a minute ago about um, Back to the Future 3, because very strangely, Alan Silvestri scored both movies. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he did predator uh earlier and a lot of the music here is kind of cannibalized i know you're a predator fan oh Um, yes that that scene with um uh, i think the track is called the new sheriff uh and it's it's pretty much straight out of predator i was expecting a red triangular sight to appear (laughs) a, a creature to run through but uh it's it has a similar like more than a similar tone it feels just cannibalized but it that score really helps that scene i think uh, but you're not alone in critiquing the uh, how how abrupt it was and the uh, the about turn that takes place maybe the film doesn't have time for it but th- as a character i think and and if that is the thesis of the film i don't know if it is because we've got about three different ones that it's not really focusing on any particular one but if it is about friendship and betrayal then i think perhaps that moment could have been um elongated and uh, we could have known more about Pat. Well, uh, strangely to me, it's an hour and 44 minutes and there's lots of moments of reflection and lots of moments where they're being introspective. You know, Chavez Mm. talks, um, talks, there's a fight that happens. Oh, him and Dave in the the graveyard. uh, Allow him and Dave to have a bit of conflict and their dynamics to pay off later on. And I just think, you know what? you could probably have removed one of Billy's escapes and had a Pat Garrett <laughs> scene to then one, make the escapes feel more, um, you know, less routine uh, and more kind of, you know, wow, this guy really is something special. And two, um, it would have then allowed that to have a little bit more emotional weight. And it's the yeah. same with the ending with the diddy, diddy not like it all feels slightly on a whiteboard. I'd imagine from a screenplay's perspective feels like, yeah, everything's been ticked, but Mm. just for whatever reason, emotionally, I felt like I, I needed more. 
I needed more from that moment. And the other moment I had for editing is Chavez's death, which he's talked about the spirit horse. And mm. I understand they have a shot then. It's very Blade Runner, also very TriStar. Yeah, very TriStar. It could be, it could be the TriStar thing. I, I often wonder if it was. I would do wonder if it was the TriStar white horse coming towards us. But his death, I mean, maybe that is the idea is that death is so abrupt and mm. then you move on. But again, I just needed a moment for that to sit because weirdly the, the, the kid, the 14 year old kid was given more time than both Doc and Chavez, <laughs> yes, which I get true. it. I get it. He's a 14 year old kid and that is going to hit anybody, any audience member watching it, watching a young person who's clearly impressionable get shot and die. And I think Vigo Mortensen's yeah. got a really great line that makes it even, even more painful yeah. to sit through it. It's like, take your medicine, son. Yeah. Uh, you, you think oh, it's a great line. It makes yeah. you, again, makes you want to, to, see, to, to see him get fucking taken down. So yeah. when he doesn't, you, again, you're like, well, someone's well, got to shoot Vigo. Fans of the first movie would agree with you about Chavez and Doc. They wanted more time with those characters. And, I think it just applies to the gang in general. We needed to see more. Um, but the death of Tommy and, and that slightly extended death scene, I think is worth exploring because that's the character that idolizes Billy. And that's the guy that wants to emulate him and wants to get shot in the leg like this. Yeah. And he's the other side of it. It's like, it, it explores that quite well. Um, uh, the idea of celebrity and wanting to emulate and then, you know, being, be careful what you wish for. Um, well, we talked the, about it. We talked because, th- and this is where we come full circle, right, Matt? Because hmm. you were not keen yeah. on the the art film that was the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And in Young Guns Two, they they're essentially tackling the same the same the same issue. They're exploring that that idea of somebody, you know, meeting their hero. But in this one, he's meeting his he's met his hero, and he's everything that he thought he was. And it's Billy who's. Right. The person who's realized that actually there are consequences to the way that I am. Um, mm. not only because he doesn't see it when his, when his gang get killed, but he feels it when, uh, when this kid gets shot dead. How about that moment? Um, do you think Pat shoots the kid? I shouldn't say the kid shoots Tommy on purpose, or do you think he's trying to hit Billy? No, I think he's trying to hit Billy. I don't, I don't ever get the sense that he purposely tried to, you know, it was because if that was the case, because we've seen he's a good shot. Yeah, he would have just he would have just hit the to me. Or it's the way the, the shadows cross over, and he's aiming for Billy, and accidentally hits Tommy, and then that reaction shot of Peterson. Uh, I got him. I shot him. There's a moment like there. Oh God, I actually did it. I did the thing that they're paying yeah. me to do. But some someone was talking about a theory that he never intended to kill. Billy. And then there's another line later where Peterson, uh, as Garrett says, uh, I shot everything except you. But I think they were referring to the scene in the doorway. Um, there's a scene where, where Doc dies and, and he shoots the uh, the frame of the doorway just to distract Poe or, or someone else. Well, it's because um, Vigo's got him in his sights. Mm. And that's what he that's what he, lo- yes. he says. Like, why did you do that? Because he, yeah. he knew then he was going to duck because he, he thought he was right. clear. But again, we, we see lots of back and forth and we can tell that, um, Garrett is, is conflicted, but yeah. it just, it just felt like there wasn't enough setup because then, because then we see the aftermath of his betrayal 
and we see how Billy responds to it. You know, he leaves him, he leaves him the, um, Buffalo scrotum with the, right. with the, with the poster. <laughs> with the eyes shot the out. Eye, with the eyes shot out. He leaves him the sign, um, in the, uh, Garrett's place. Yeah. Garrett's place in blood. So we see that, but, but we didn't get enough setup. Didn't, it wasn't enough build up. To, right. to allow that to be like super cathartic. Well, you're you're very good with the uh, setups and payoffs, so you know, you know, th- th- there's there's a there's a payoff there, but perhaps not quite enough setup. Let's talk about Doc and Chavez and the rest <clears> of the gang. Some uh, some great some great familiar faces. Uh, I'm going to start with the the lowest of the low ones, though. I am I'm I love Alan Ruck. Um, <laughs> those, those of you, those of you that have listened to the show for the longest time know that um, we haven't done speed yet, but we will. And Alan Rook, <laughs> Alan Rook as the goofy tourist on that oh, bus. Oh darn. Oh darn. Oh darn. Um, yeah. Uh, we already went to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> That's his wheelhouse, like, isn't it? Yeah. It's That's- his wheelhouse. He's also in, um, this will be one of, it's not a pull in focus though. I think everyone's seen Twister. Um, but I love oh, him Twister yeah. as well. He's just, <laughs> so there's, um, and yeah, most, most famous roles. Clearly, as Ferris Bueller, um, but yeah, I, he, he's good in this. Again, not enough time given to him, but he's got a nice little moment about wanting to find a name because yeah. he is—he's a casualty of the capitalism that is starting to happen in Lincoln uh-huh. City. You know, his farm has been taken over by a conglomerate in uh-huh. the the shape of James Coburn in my favorite yeah. scene. <laughs> but but you know. What a that, scene. That, well, yeah. it's a great scene. We will, we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, let's do that in favorite crazy. scenes because that's, yeah, we'll do that in favorite scenes. Yeah. It's, it's uh, great. He's, he's got a great name too, Henry William French. And, uh, it, one of, as part of the, this is kind of a culty film and a lot of people love the line, uh, you took a lot of farms, Mr. Chisholm. That's a very, uh, that's the number one Alan Rock, uh, quoted line. I, I yeah. He's, he's good in this. Um, and, and Christian Slater, and I only realized, in watching Young Guns 2, that basically Christian Slater was dining out on <laughs> having, having an inferiority complex. Like who, the casting agents in Hollywood yeah. clearly went, Christian, you're going to be the guy who resents the fact that you're not the guy. So in, right. in this, he's, he's Dave Arkansas Rudabar and mm-hmm. I, it is quite fun. And, and when he gets the moment when Billy says like, Dave, it's your gang is like, no, 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 Billy. It's never my, <laughs> it was never my gang. It's like, well, good, good. But it's surprising actually that he became such a huge star because normally mm. when you're, when you're positioned as second fiddle in everything, especially these big Hollywood films, then that's, mm. that's pretty much you. But I guess true romance and, yeah. um, a few others, uh, I'm thinking like Broken Arrow, like I, right. to watch him in that, to watch him in this, to then see him go from this where he's the, second fiddle guy to broken arrow where he's taken on bulky fat Travolta. Like that's, well, that's quite a stretch. There was a, a girl on a podcast and she said that the only reason she went to the theater to see this was for Christian Slater. He was a big pinup at the time, like big heartthrob. Um, and one thing I like that he does in this is you've just mentioned it. It's that through line of uh, it being his gang. And uh, he's always, and the other thing he does is he tries to get everyone to leave when he wants. Uh, so he says, let's skin out. And then no one listens to him. Uh, and he wants it to be his gang. But when he gets the opportunity, he, he doesn't. And, and then there's another part where there's like this whip pan, kind of comedic whip pan going on where he said, you are so, I am not. 
uh, and there's a debate going on between him and, and Billy. And that through line of, of humor was quite revealing on, on rewatch because I haven't really looked at this film in like critical depth. But I think one of the things it does really well is have a serious moment and then undercut it with, with humor. It does it time and time again, and it makes for a really entertaining watch. It diffuses the tension with, with humor. There's a moment where, uh, at say, at say, what does that mean? It's an ancient Navajo word. It means stop. Like they think Chavez is doing it through bravery, but he was just trying to get his horse to stop. And then there's another one where, uh, Billy says he's got a buckshot infection in his elbow when he's going to shoot Doc's chains and he's going, whoa. And he almost like aims the barrel at Doc. And there's these little moments of humor that, that, that almost always come immediately after a, a moment of tension or, or like a, or drama. And I, th- I think that's, it's kind of sprinkled very well throughout. Yeah. Well, I think you mentioned it, um, before when you were talking about your experiences with the film. And I think this is where Young Guns 2 is successful is that you're trying to rejuvenate a, a dying, a dying genre. Um, Hollywood's got a, an absolute love affair with Westerns, uh, partly because I would imagine, um, for the, for the many of the studios, this was their cash cow for so, so long. And, and, and most of those classic cinematic movies, those John Ford, Howard Hawks movies, Peck and Paw movies, they're all laden in Western genre, Sergio Leone, et cetera. Um, mm. but this is, you know, for, we, we have to come to terms and studios know this, but, but movie fans like me and you will watch anything. But the general audience aren't going to go back and watch the good, the bad, and the ugly. They're just not. Right. Um, I, and no one's going to go back and watch the original Magnificent Seven. So when Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, Ethan Hawke, you know, you name it, uh, are in this Magnificent Seven movie that came out a few years back, well, yeah, you remake it because a new, you know, it might find a new audience. So what's surprising is that Young Guns and Young Guns Two seem to hit at a time when Western's got a big shot on the arm. And I think Young Guns is partly responsible for that. And that's why I resent the MTV generation's Western, because actually I would say it's pretty standard. You know, the the thing that's that's maybe not in there is some of the depth, some of the richness. And mm-hmm. you could probably say that some of the action and the way that they interact is probably a little bit more akin to what you would expect from teenagers in the 90s, the way that they interact. But I would suggest that that's just the way that teenagers react, no matter what era. And and that's one of the things that I think Young Guns 2 manages to get, which is, like you say, every time something serious happens, we don't dwell on it. Um, You know, we're young. We undercut it and move on. Yeah, we want to move on. (laughs) Yeah. There there was quite a postmodern kind of thing, I thought. It's kind of self-aware, at at the very least. Like, this idea that this one's for the kids, this isn't your daddy's, Western, you know, this isn't a John Wayne. Um, and perhaps that, that was the point they were making by casting one of his sons, as you say, in the, in the first one, like this is the next generation. Um, there was some stuff that reminded me of Tarantino. I always bang on about him. I know this is kind of pre-Tarantino, 1990. But um, th- th- this idea of dialogue within the, the uh, soundtrack song at the end uh just as that the, the final song that plays in the movie, the, um, the Blaze of Glory, has all of the dialogue intercut with it, the way the way he used to do with uh, with Reservoir Dogs and, and and Pulp Fiction, like seemingly for the first time, someone was doing that with the soundtracks. 
Um, it, it's also a Western that seems to poke fun at itself and other Westerns, as well as being like seriously kind of trying to subvert them. It's kind of winking a little bit, but in a nineties way, you know, like, like the way Scream kind of winks at, at, at horror movies. Um, you know, it, it kind of, it made me think about uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. There's a line in the Royal Tenenbaums where Owen Wilson says, uh, everyone knows General Custer died at Little Bighorn, but what my book proposes is maybe he didn't. So it made me think about like that <laughs> kind of, I know Wes Anderson's poking fun at him as an author in that moment, but it's kind of what's going on. They're kind of subverting it just to be a little bit um, nodding and winking and uh, and self-aware. Um, but in, in terms of where Westerns are now, there's something quite exciting happening with Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, Netflix have given him 200 million and he's going to make the ultimate Western. He's got De Niro and DiCaprio. And I, I even joined an, an unofficial Facebook group to just spy on what's going on. Um, and uh, you can see what Brendan Fraser's eating for lunch every day. So uh, yeah, yeah, well, fantastic. Internet. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, hopefully. Um... Hopefully it's good grub. Um, yeah, I've got high hopes for that for that movie. I, and westerns could they come back again? He, he says he's going to make the ultimate western, but if it if it does well, who knows? It could. Well, this is and this is yeah, this is normally how how it goes, isn't it? So um, I'd imagine the Magnificent Seven remake got greenlit as soon as the True Grit remake with Jeff Bridges was so and that was successful critically and financially mm. so you know these things do go round in circles but like i say it's normally every three or four years they'll they'll have another stab at it yeah. and they'll try and do something different and that's why you know no one said mtv generation for tombstone that came out a few years later and that's just mm. because it's got slightly older actors but it's still got jason Priestley in it and billy zane and mm. you know a few other younger types so just because right. it's kurt russell doesn't all, suddenly make it like well this is this is more grown up Tombstone yeah. is equally as flash and uh, as equally as kind of surface oh. level Western as Young Guns 2. I think we had Silverado, uh, like mid eighties. And then we had Young Guns 2, uh, Young Guns 88, Young Guns 2, 90. And then we had Unforgiven, uh, uh, kind of after that. And Lou Diamond Phillips talked in one of his interviews about, you know, uh, at least Silverado and Young Guns owing to this, uh, resurgence. Mm. But then, then you're right. Some of the critically acclaimed ones kind of come in later, um, mm. with, with Unforgiven being being particularly successful. Yeah, Un- Unforgiven is now, uh, I would I would say is is pretty much categorised as a as a masterpiece. Yeah, it's a classic, and, uh, and, it, and it is a classic of the genre um, for all the reasons you know. And again, if you've never seen a western before, you may watch Unforgiven and slightly feel. Like, I don't really get what's so special about this one. But if mm. you have got a history with it, with yeah. that genre, and you've seen and with Clint, Clint and with Clint, then it has so much impact. And uh, and I would say the same for Young Guns as well. Mm. I'd say, you know, you need to have kind of had a little bit of history with with the first one in order to enjoy the second one, um, but also with the Western genre to, to understand, like, what they're doing differently. Um, mm. But you mentioned it, and I do believe this is a good gateway for anyone who's like a little bit unsure. I'm not sure if Westerns are for me. Um, right. This one will entertain. I'm just not sure if it will stay with you. But as a good gateway drug, 
I would suggest that it's pretty much where it sits. And you talked about Lou Diamond Phillips. Can I be super, super honest, but also probably really um, revealing how much of a bad human being I am? Him and Jimmy Smits, I constantly, constantly get com- like mixed up with. Uh, I was like, is this? Yeah. I was like, Lou Diamond Phillips wasn't in the Stephen King Tommy Knockers TV. Jimmy Smits is LA Law, am I right? Yeah, uh, yes, yes, he is. But and then when I like looked at Lou Diamond Phillips, I was like, oh my god, this man has made so many movies and pretty much a staple of like B movie action for decades. And then, because I remember seeing, me and Devlin watched a, a really bad shark movie with Christy Swanson <laughs> and Lou Diamond <laughs> Phillips. I'm it's in. called, I think it's called Red Water or Dark Water. I'm going to have to Google it, but okay. it, it had the worst shark in it because they had no money, clearly. And they just, you could, you could actually see the string that they were pulling. So they didn't even have oh, like God. an animatronic shark. They just had, they had a fin and you could see the string and, and they had a, they had like a, a full, a full sized <laughs> bull shark. And that's how they got around it. It was like, well, it's a bull shark. So it's not very big. And Gosh. they just pulled it through the water and it was in a lake. And I think if I'm not mistaken, listeners can help me out. I think Coolio's in it as well. It was one of those. Ah, okay. Yeah. It was like an, anac- it was like anaconda, but with a shark, yeah, but, with Lou Diamond, but with Lou Diamond Phillips and Christy Swanson. It was not very good, but we watched that on channel five. Uh, Lou Diamond Phillips described himself as the ethnic member of the Brat Pack on the first movie. And I think he brings a real quiet dignity to this one. Um, that, that death scene I've mentioned already that's kind of interesting and layered. Um, there's also a great shot where Chavez is walking towards the barn and there's all of the white crosses and it looks like he's walking through a, like a mini graveyard and it's a very low angle tracking shot. Uh, again, that moment of, of his death could have been Better. There is a strange fade there, if I remember correctly, as well. Well, it, it, yeah, it's almost, it's almost like a, a wipe with the horse. It's almost like a Star Wars wipe. And Billy picks up some like buckshot or something. He picks up something from the table, and I couldn't quite work out what they were trying to say. But there was an odd cut or an odd dissolve there. Uh, one final thing on Lou Diamond Phillips is he should have been Brave Star. Um, I think I've lost my notes for this, but uh, there was a, an animation called Brave Star. And he had a he had a techno horse, like a robot horse. <laughs> he was like a, a, a cosmic cowboy, but he was Native American. And uh, I think the animation came out around eighty eight and was like repeated into eighty nine. And it had a great brave star um, introduction that people, everyone my age would probably probably know. Did you ever see the cartoon? I did not, mate. No, but I will take your word for it that Lou Diamond was robbed. It, yeah, it, he, that, that's like the ultimate Native American superhero role. And if you could have got a Paul Verhoeven and a big budget, I think that would have been a, a magnificent vehicle for Lou. But yeah, it's a bit late now, unfortunately. Well, you mentioned it, Matt, that uh, fans of the first one were disappointed in the way that they handled Doc. He's probably the character that is served the best in this film, in my opinion, because his death is one of those memorable moments. Because yeah. you have the big, big standoff right before it, and there is, there is nothing worse than uh, than saying goodbye and leaving on an argument. And, mm. and it's it's just, that, to me, that is the that's the bit where the screenplay has nailed it. I think the, the way that they bring Doc into the story is a little bit uh, confusing. 
It's because we're forgetting about the wife. And I think he doesn't even mention that he got married <laughs> and has a kid, but he doesn't seem to like, so they, they, he's happy in that whorehouse as well, isn't he? Yeah. Some, something's gone terribly wrong between, mm. and then this is where I'm like, it's the same screenwriter. So he must have the notes from the previous film or watch the previous film to go, okay, well, this is where, so they needed a line which said like, maybe, Maybe she died of tuberculosis. I don't know, but you you, mm. you find a way to kind of excuse it somehow, free him of that burden of well, don't you have a wife and kid? Because actually, he seems to be more wedded to his classroom, which is fine, but it's not fine when you're coming straight off Young Guns, and he's you know that film presents him as being like love at first sight. You're I will die for you because he do, he literally puts his body on the line for it. To so then in this one keep saying i just need to get home but ah i'll stick around because billy's mm. billy's got a rabbit's uh paw uh and he you know he's a lucky charm he'll never die but that 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 scene to me is is actually i mentioned the giant james coburn scene but actually i think the keith sutherland emilio wow. estevez showdown is the is is for me is the best scene because Again, we're cinematic brothers here because they're they're my top two yeah, it's, so, it's the, it's the, it's the one that has the most amount of impact. And it's because it's the yeah. way that he just says, I'm going to leave. And before that, he really does give, uh, give Billy some home truths. And then it's, it's killed, well, shot. So, I mean, that is abrupt. And that's what you want. Yeah. Right? That's for maximum impact. What about old Mexico? You promised us. I'd be just another gringo in old Mexico. It's the same as being dead. What about Tommy? You son of a bitch. You're starting to believe what they're writing about you, aren't you? Let me tell you what you really are. You wrote a 15-year-old boy straight into his grave. And the rest of us, straight to hell. Straight to hell. Bonnie, you are not a god. Why don't you pull the trigger and find out? I gotta get back home. What the hell are you doing? We're not even in position yet. They killed you. Billy is kind of confessing, isn't he, about the Mexican blackbird. So it goes from him being uh, brutally, you know, honest about that and saying that he lied to Doc's anger, uh, which goes into that line I said before about you are not a god. Why don't you pull the trigger and find out, which is one of the best lines in the movie. And then the, the shock of Doc getting hit which then goes immediately into to Billy's regret. And then it all kind of collapses around him at that point. And uh, the, the, the self-sacrifice is, is terrific. I think that's, uh, I could have talked about that in favorite scenes, but that one is chill inducing to me. I think that's really dramatic and redemptive. And uh, the music swells and Billy turns the gun around and hands, hands him two guns. It's just one of those beautiful moments that can only happen in a Western as well, uh, it, it has like that um, Butch and Sundance conclusion. It does. Uh, it does. 
And yeah. there's a nobility in what Doc's about to do, yeah. despite the fact that, and this is where I keep going on about, I wish the film had more of a perspective, more of a point of view, more of a thesis on Billy the Kid. Because at that point, you know, we are supposed to be feeling like you've just taken away a 14 year old mm-hmm. kid. Now one of our favorite characters. And then we see Chavez get, get hit too. Mm-hmm. I, I get the sense that we're watching it through and it's been a tale that's being told through his eyes. And we, every now and again, we have a line of narration, uh, yeah. from, from old Billy kind of laden over the top. I think you could probably got rid of that. I don't think there was any mm-hmm. need for that, but I guess that's just a reminder that this is his story. Mm-hmm. So in that way, maybe I'm supposed to feel like, no, he is going through the ringer because he's telling the tale, but because I don't see it, as much yeah. because Billy is constantly reverts back to the norm, back to reckless abandon, youth, youthful exuberance and defiance. Mm. There's not much learning going on, is there? No, he doesn't. He do, He need, and that's where the scene with him and Pat. Maybe that was the time he should have done it, which is I deserve to die because it, maybe that's how they show it through action because he turns his back, opens his chest. But I wish there was more of a confessional there. I guess I wish I, I, I didn't want him to pour his heart out like a Shakespearean play, but I needed something more. With Chavez, Chavez is shot and he says, that's a bad shot, Chavez. When a man gets hit like that, it's over. But just before he finds out Chavez has been shot, he comes out from behind that curtain and he's giggling again. He's like a little a kid again. And we've lost mm. Doc at this point. We've lost uh, the kid, the, you know, the 14 year old. And there's, there's not enough. Not enough learning to this arc, is there really? No, no. Um, but maybe the film just isn't necessarily interested in doing that. It's more interested in delivering these entertaining moments and they, and they come quick, they come fast. And before you know it, the credits are rolled and you, you're walking out and the popcorn's on the floor. That kind of, maybe that's what they're, they're looking at. And, and if you're, you know, 10 years old, like I was, you watch it again because, because you, you, you like those moments, uh, enough to revisit it. But, you know, seeing this film as a, as, as a 38 year old, I can't imagine what I would think of it. I'm just completely, um, you know, still transfixed by the, the way it made me feel when I was younger. So yeah, it, it's interesting getting a second perspective from you. Well, I, 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 I've got to say, I was surprised at the, the depiction of the violence being so kind of upfront with it. And, and let's mm. get into our favorite scene. So James Coburn as, Chisholm again not a recurring character but we this is essentially the thing this is not the I guess it is the inciting incident isn't it you know he goes to try and collect money from this very very wealthy landowner um he was formerly employed them uh, yeah has formerly employed them as regulators I assume or people to kind of uh steal horses from from his competitors maybe i think that's kind of what he's what he's driving it's implied, it's not, yeah. so it's implied yeah um that that billy has helped him in the past and therefore needs a bit of um you know needs mm-hmm. a bit of money uh going away money yeah and and it's the final taunt and i was surprised at how kind of you know no holds bar the film is you know billy asked one of the the two security uh, Mexicans that he's got employed. Yeah. Which it's one of fastest you is the, fast, the fastest, fastest <laughs> with the iron? Yeah. It's got loads of good lines like that. Uh, and then they just, and, and, and 
because normally with westerns, there's a code of honor. If someone you know offers you a jewel, mm-hmm. then then you you honor it. And Billy literally gets Dave Rudabar to just shoot him. Yeah. Uh, they, they played that clip on uh, the Arsenio Hall show. Uh, this, if you look in our playlist uh, on the site, there'll be uh, Emilio Estevez on the Arsenio Hall show, and they play that clip for the audience. You know, when someone sets up a clip on a talk show, and the the, the crowd went wild for it. They, it, I don't, I, I think that's an example of them shifting what would ordinarily happen in a western and taking your daddy's Western and the, the code and throwing it out the window. And, and Bill and Billy is like the perfect spokesperson for that. He's the perfect person to do it. Mr. Chisholm, which one of these boys is the fastest with the iron? Don't you do it, Billy. That'd be me. You drop Sam Cole. Billy. Put her down now. Step away. You owe me $500, Mr. Chisholm. So what I'm going to do is kill one of your men for every $5 you owe me. Only I'm going to do it fair. How's that for square? Now, when I go for my guns, you start shooting. But I promise you, you will not make it. Ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Dave? Oh, my God. He is in a way as well, because the way that they position him, he is simultaneously quite smart and quite devious but everything, but also seemingly it's just pure luck. Like I'm thinking, um, so he escaped when he escapes the second time. If the, if the lady of the manor who has a great scene, by the way, when she just, uh, literally walks out <laughs> after a, her whorehouse has been burnt down naked also in front of all these prudes is a great, it's a great <laughs> moment. And I was it's like, you can kiss my ass. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. But you know, she doesn't come come and leave the gun, then he doesn't escape. Um, there was, there was, but also like with his, uh, you know, going down the hill, there were all these like lucky escape. Well, well Chavez talks about it. Uh, he, he says like, you know, we, we'll all, we'll all get killed and you'll make it. That underhanded trickery, um, ordinarily would be like, well, position him as a bit of a bad guy. But in this, it's like, he, 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 got you. Uh, yeah. So maybe, maybe that's what it was. Um, but that was the last taunt, wasn't it? For, for Chisholm. That's what it's like. I want him gone. But the way James Coburn, I mean, he's <laughs> such a, this is again, stunt casting. Anything, anything that comes out of his mouth, you are going to listen because he's yeah. got one of those voices, one of those faces. You put him on screen and he is going to, he is, your eyes are going to literally follow him. And he, he seems so pissed off. It's great. The one that we always used to say was, uh, you've just killed yourself. <laughs> uh, that was the, the quote. And uh, I am New Mexico and you are dead is another great one. And the one that he actually said in another movie, he played Pat Garrett in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, in the Peckinpah one. And there's a line there about stick it up your ass and set fire to it. And they got him to say that within this scene as well. So he actually says the same line of 
the dialogue. So uh, yeah, that, that, there was a little bit of a callback there. But uh, what I like most though is that they're sprinkling in these elderly statesmen of the genre and kind of scattering them around the the the, the youth. I think I have more in my conclusion about it, but the, the first film feels like uh, they're just dipping their toe in the water. Like, is anyone going to believe Charlie Sheen in a Western? Is anyone going to go for this? Let's put um, Jack Palance and Terrence Stamp and uh, the, the the dude from Lost. Let's put them around. Uh, put them around them just to protect them a bit. And I feel like that's still going on here with some of the elderly statesmen and Coburn. It's just off the charts he's just great what a great scene but it, but but again it works for that generational conflict too you know scott wilson as the governor is mm-hmm. entertained by billy but entertained by him like uh, a jester would be for a king like right. when uh, when they when he's doing the shooting of the candles and he's like well you <laughs> have only <laughs> there are there three are can- two three candles oh, and only two bullets left and you know, and there's a little crowd and you can tell that they're also a little bit scared about him if he turns the gun on them. But then as soon yeah. as they do it, they're like, they applaud like he's a prank monkey. So the, there's, there's a sense that they, again, they're playing within the genre. Uh, and I think, I think that that, that is smart and it's, it's credit that doesn't really get given to the film. But then again, I don't think anyone talks about this film anyway. I'm not suggest it doesn't exist. It's not one of those films that's managed to just kind of fall off a cliff, but it's certainly not one that ever even gets mentioned, even when there are Western reprisals of the past. As I said, when Magnificent Seven came out, no one went, well, this is the Young Guns 2 of 2015-16, whenever that it's came out. It's not thought of like that. It's, um, it's, it's repeated on television a lot, and it's repeated on cable, by all accounts, in America very often, but... um I, I just think as as uh, cinephiles, I've never heard anyone talk about it, really. Oh, would you like to pay, pay a quick visit to the uh, Critics' Corner? Yes, let's let's hear what Rog and Gene have got to say, because there's no doubt that they've they've looked at this one. It was in it was in their era. Siskel and Ebert were dishing out spoilers like Big Macs on this one. Uh, <laughs> Roger Ebert said, there's no payoff, and uh, the scenes felt like they were in there because the Western genre demanded it rather than being essential to the characters and the motivations of the characters. So are you, are you with him there? Are you still with him? Uh, not the second bit, but the 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 payoffs and some of the motivations. Yeah, I'm half in. Give me, mm. uh, cut that burger in half and I'll have half as well, Roger. Right, okay, that's a good deal. Uh, Siskel resented the contemporary nature of it, uh, which again, it feels like, you know, sorry, but it's not, it's not your daddy's Western again. But... Uh, he didn't like the youthful delivery. Um, and then he ended his review very abruptly with, uh, the movie doesn't add anything to our knowledge of Billy the Kid. And I don't care if it does or it doesn't, you know, that it's not a documentary and, uh, I, I don't need to learn more about Billy the Kid. I, I was entertained. So that's where I differed from, from Gene. All right then. Well, um, well, thank you very much. I mean, that was, uh, I, I feel bad that I'm half in agreement. Um, no, no, don't be deaf. Yeah, with with old Rog on this one. But what what about you, Matt? What are your final thoughts on Young Guns to Blaze of Glory? And do you oh almost missed the semicolon? Uh, and do you recommend it for our listeners? Okay, um, I thought about it a lot, and it, it's it didn't crack my top three, uh, but it, it's probably my favorite western. It's the one I returned to. It's the first one I ever loved. Uh, cinematically, it's not the good, the bad, and the ugly, or Once Upon a Time in the West. 
um, or Unforgiven. But, you know, for newcomers to the Western genre, I think you can, a lot of good looking actors here uh, with Vidal Sassoon haircuts and daft humor. You know, you're going to, you're going to find something to, to, to hook you into this one, I think. Uh, otherwise you're probably just never going to enjoy a Western. Um, I, I, you don't need to have seen the first. I think you can jump in to the second one. Uh, we've argued that the, the two movies could be spliced together and, and made into something new. Like you said, another pass of the screenplay might have, might have helped there. I love that it's all practical in camera, stuntmen, real gunfire, bullet hits, squibs on horses. It's terrific. You don't see that stuff now. So uh, to revisit that was, uh, was really great. It made me miss it, actually. Um, I think it's a film that's very interested in moments that build and then drop off. And then there's another moment. And if you're not interested in that, you'll be interested in the next one, maybe. And, and it, it's, that's what dictates the movie's pace, uh, pacing. And, you know, it's, it's hit them with this, then hit them with that, and then hit them with something else. And I think, as we mentioned, it, it makes for an entertaining film, but it doesn't leave you with much room to breathe. And the character development, I wouldn't say leaves a lot to be desired, but there, there's more that could have been done. I think we probably agree there. Um, but the Billy character has a, a decent arc. Um, he doesn't learn an awful lot, but um, he... You know, it's an interesting character to follow for the duration of a of a movie. Um, and if you wanted to make this movie two hours instead of an hour and forty four, I think we could have injected a bit more character work in there, and perhaps a bit more development with Pat Garrett, as you suggested. Uh, but it's a tragedy. You know, there are many movies like this that have ultimately sad, downbeat endings, but you just love to go on that journey of the movie and experience it with the characters and me going in like knowing that everyone's doomed i still enjoy spending time with those characters and there's part of me that hopes that it doesn't go wrong this time like every time i watch it i think we've all got films a bit a bit like that well that and that that is the crux of any tragic tale isn't it is that mm. you you are watching it hoping to hope that where you think it's going to go doesn't happen and that yeah. you know see titanic when we review that. <laughs> right, right. Oh, I'll have to be careful because I can't critique it for that. Now, can I? <laughs> um, in, in terms of recommendations, it moves really quickly. It's very entertaining. Uh, it sacrifices some key factors in what makes a great movie. Um, but it's entertaining and therefore forgivable in my eyes. Uh, if you sacrifice traditional movie making and you make a boring film, then that's awful. But if you if you have a crack at something a slightly different way and it's still entertaining, that's kind of commendable. Uh, it has a verve and a momentum and this kind of operatic sweeping camera and sweeping soundtrack. We didn't even talk about John Bon Jovi. How did we get through this and not talk about John? Well, Matt, is it, I'm going to use him as my summary. Don't you worry about John? Oh, okay, cool. Right. Uh, it's more than the cast of St. Elmo's Fire stuck in a Western. It's greater than the sum of its parts for me. Um, I think it's got a swagger and a confidence and everyone's having fun diving into pig pens, giggling, you know, that doesn't happen in the first movie. It happens in the second one when he's got his, when he, when, when Estevez knows what he's doing, he knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, we touched on nostalgia and what makes a cult film. To me, it's like this warm feeling that I get from, from watching this. And I've, 
I've said it before on my other picks, I think, but it, it's an old friend. It's a pal. And I, I wanted to use the Pulling Focus series kind of banner to send a love letter to it, really. Send it into the internet and hopefully somebody somebody else who loves this film or, or, or somebody who's never seen it that might might go on to love it and give it a chance. Uh, so if that's what Pulling Focus is for, then hopefully we've done it. And uh, let us know on any of our socials if you if you enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it. Or whatever. I'll uh, I'll pass it over to you, Guy. Well, you mentioned that we didn't really talk about John Bon Jovi. Um, I, I I may have been a little bit devious there because I was doing it on purpose. Because I'd written, you know, you know how I like to use an analogy for my summaries because it apparently yeah. they help people understand more what the hell I'm trying to get at. Um, I am going to say that Young Guns Two is a bit like a Bon Jovi song. Um, it is in the moment thoroughly thoroughly entertaining you'd like to sing it out loud but you never ever want to google what the hell the lyrics are really about because (laughs) there ain't a great deal of depth and i think that is honestly that is young guns too um because you know the music is great in this i think got nominated for an academy award they didn't win but um you know the alan silvestri score jeff murphy's direction this is a fantastic looking movie with a really good looking cast they're all doing, I think, good work. Where this film falls foul is that it doesn't really have a central thesis, doesn't ask, a, doesn't pose a question that then gets either answered or at least presents an argument throughout. It is, I think you described it perfectly as a movie of moments and you you either can enjoy those kind of films or you'll tune out because you're after something deeper. But... To my mind, this is like absolutely perfect Sunday afternoon fare. This is yeah. what I would watch at about two o'clock before I'm about to start thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner because um, I'm having a lazy Sunday. And I think that's mm-hmm. what the, this is where this film should live. Um, but it is better than the contemporary reviews would have you believe. Um, and I, I do think that it should be seen because I think this is Emilio Estevez's best performance certainly that I've seen. So I'd be interested to know if someone can tell me otherwise. Um, and I think this is Jeff Murphy's best Hollywood movie. But without Jeff Murphy, there would be no Peter Jackson. And, and that is a fact. You know, this is a New Zealand director who broke into Hollywood after making a successful New Zealand picture that went global. Um, so he set the path for others to follow uh, and which is definitely why Peter Jackson got him in a second direct, uh, second unit director on Lord of the Rings. Uh, not only because of his talent, but I should imagine he probably felt like he owed him. So mm. yeah, a little bit of respect for, for Jay, Jay Murph. He is not, um, he's not a Brett Ratner or that kind of ilk of just hack. Um, I yeah. think he has got, he's got an eye and I think he knows how to construct a movie. So if you've mm. never seen Young Guns 2 and you're not really a fan of Westerns, or you've never seen a Western before, then I think Young Guns 2, colon, Blaze of Glory is a good starter for six. Um, because right. you will walk away from it and go, that was really entertaining. I would like to, a bit like if you liked bon John, John Bon Jovi, you're like, oh, I think I quite like uh, this kind of powered ballad rock. Let's, let's put some Springsteen on. Yeah, oh, I wonder what Bruce Springsteen's like. Oh, wait a minute, he writes music. Yeah. That's actually got some soul. So yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's where, that's where my analogy goes to. Yeah, that's good. That's accurate. Matt, where can our listeners, if they want to, 
where can they seek out Young Guns 2, Colon Blaze of Glory? Well, great news if you're in the UK. It's currently streaming on Netflix. Uh, if you're in America, uh, there's something called USA. No, there's something called Spectrum On Demand uh, that has it on streaming. DirecTV, AMC, and Stars all have it. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, you can rent it on Vudu and all those other yeah, ones. Yeah, you can, you can rent it in the UK on Amazon, but there'd be zero points because I'd imagine if you've got Amazon, you've probably got Netflix. That's where I watched it. I watched it on Netflix. I don't think there's a Blu-ray actually. Uh, there might be by now, but someone said there wasn't. And if there is, I don't think there's any extras on or anything. So, uh, yeah, I'd probably just stream this one. Well, fantastic. So if you enjoy the show and want to show your support, then please like, subscribe pen a review on whichever podcast platform you listen to us on we would really appreciate it and it'll help others discover the show which is what it's all about and uh, and we'll continue to deliver stellar content with no paywalls no subscriptions all free of charge because we're like billy aren't we uh matt stick it <laughs> stick it to the man and authority it's literally reckless defiance because we're now too old to be doing stuff for free <laughs> matt Thank you very much for bringing me to Young Guns again. Uh, I watched one and two. Two was definitely uh, my preferred option. One, uh, probably a better script, but not as not as well made. Two, not as good a script, but way more entertaining. There's a lot of just a lot of just sitting around in one. Um, yeah, yeah. So. I oh, it was a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad you, you responded well to, yeah. to aspects I, of it, at least. And, uh, I think I agree with you. Sunday afternoon. Time to Magic. Well, we will uh, we will say our goodbyes. Uh, so, when the spirit horse comes, then it's over. It's Galley in Glasgow, signing out. Stay safe, everyone. At, at Pendleton, the white cake with sweet frost. It's Matt from <laughs> South Korea. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Mm-hmm.